Well, praise God, we're going to go ahead and continue our series, there it is, on the book of Romans. We're getting into chapter 3, and uh, man, the book of Romans, I don't know if you've had a time to read through it, but it is like the gospel all rolled up into one book, and it's, a, it's an amazing, uh, an amazing chapter to just spend some time, an amazing book to spend time in. But let's go ahead and uh, bow as we come to the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just give you glory and honor this morning. Father, we thank you that you're here with us this morning, Father. And Lord, we just uh, want to be here with, with eyes to see and ears to hear, Father. Lord, we just thank you that your, word would perme- that your word would permeate our hearts, Father, that it would cause growth in our lives, Father, that we'd be challenged and convicted this morning, Father, not to condemnation, Father, but we'd be convicted to growth in you, Father, that we would become more mature every morning, Father, and we would come to know you better each and every day, Father. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Praise God. So like I said, we're going to go ahead and get started in in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, and I've entitled this one Justified by Faith, because this is where Paul really starts to get in talking about how we are justified to the Lord, how we are made righteous to the Lord. And it's it's not by works, it's not by the law like the, the Jews were used to dealing with. It's, they had this list of rules they had to meet, these these policies they had to, and conditions they had to live up to. And if they couldn't live up to those conditions, then they were no longer pure, they were no longer holy and no longer righteous. So Paul spends the, the bulk of this chapter arguing that righteousness is no longer the the result of the works of the law. It's no longer what we do to make ourselves better, but it's actually faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. It's faith in the one who paid the ultimate penalty, who actually fulfilled the laws, we'll see here towards the end, that makes us righteous. Because the thing is, the law never ever made anybody righteous. Even even in the Old Testament, it turns out that, that those who were living according to the law still needed Jesus to be made righteous. They were still waiting for their Messiah, their Savior, so that they could be considered righteous. And the, the, the law and the sacrifices and all that stuff they were doing was actually just a shadow of what was to come, a type and of a shadow. And the problem with the law is that is its strength wasn't in making people righteous, because the law never made anybody righteous. That's, uh, Paul says that uh, later on in, in Romans. The, the law never made anybody righteous. But what the law's strength was, was highlighting sin. That's actually what the law came, came about and did, is it, is it made us aware of where we were messing up. It was our, our plumb line and our yardstick. And, and uh, we, we, when we finally saw the law, we're like, wait a minute, we're just not getting it done. We're not doing the right things. This is God's requirement. This is God's standard. But we're not there. But the reason the law never made anybody righteous is because all the law did was point out where you were failing. Now the law in and of itself was very good. The law is from God. And and the law, as we'll find out later, doesn't pass away. The law is not going away. The standards and requirements set forth by God in the law are still in, in, in effect today. Those requirements still have to be met. But... We can never meet those requirements, and that's why we need Jesus to fulfill those requirements in our life. And the problem that we see now is, is, is that the law actually gave strength to sin because it pointed out all of our failures. It actually made us realize all the errors we were messing up, and it gave strength to sin, Paul says. And because we had the law in place now, a lot of times we think we have to live our lives up to a certain standard to, to get into heaven for God to feel okay with us. We feel like that if we, if we sin, if we fall short, then God is going to look at us and be upset with us or, or God's going to hate us or God's not going to love us or God's not going to forgive us or all these things. We feel like if we don't meet these standards, if we don't do the right things, then God is going to turn his back on us. 
So Paul spends a lot of this chapter saying that, hey, listen, it's not anything that you can do to earn God's love and God's forgiveness and God's righteousness. There's nothing that you can do. No matter how well you do, no matter how well that you can live according to these rules, you know, if you wake up in the morning and, and you spend the entire day and you don't sin, you don't cuss, you, read your, you do all the right things, you can never do it well enough. Because unfortunately, we're born broken. And then finally, he spends some time clarifying what others were, were saying about him. Because this is what Paul's teaching. Paul's teaching that, that your works don't make you, right, make you righteous. There's nothing that you can do. And people are getting the wrong idea. They're like, wait a minute, that means we can do whatever we want. Party time! And they go out and they're just doing all kinds of crazy. But the truth is, you, you, that's not what we were saved from. We were freed from sin. We're not free to sin. Amen? Let's go ahead and get started. In Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4, and hopefully I can keep up with it today. I'm changing how I'm doing my notes up here, so hopefully I can keep where I'm supposed to be. Don't spend all the time going, where am I at? It says in chapter 1, I'm sorry, in verse 1 of chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision, great in every respect? First all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So here's what's happening. Paul's just spent the last couple chapters arguing that Jews and Gentiles are exactly the same. And that there's no difference between them. And now the Jews are like, wait a minute, we're the chosen people of God. What are you saying? So Paul begins to answer that question. He says, then, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. So now, like the Jews, I'm confused. I'm like, wait a minute, we're the same, we're not the same, we have advantage, we don't have advantage. What is, what's the deal? What is Paul trying to say? So Paul goes on to explain it. He says, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. You know, the... The, the word here is actually uh, the logos. The Greek word is logos. It's actually the word of God. The Jews were entrusted with the word of God. You know, and this is not something any Gentile could claim at the time. They were God's chosen people, and, and they were entrusted with his word. They were actually given the promises of God. And there was great benefit in that because God was actively at work in their lives. And ultimately, what we have to understand too is that the Jews were thinking, well, if we include the Gentiles, does that exclude us now? And ultimately, when, when we include the Gentiles through Jesus Christ by faith, you know, he's saying, look, you still have benefit. You were given, God entrusted you with, with his word. But unfortunately, the Jews at the time abused this privilege. That's actually why the Gentiles were, were allowed in is, is because they weren't holding up the end of the bargain. And, and God's like, you know what, if you guys aren't going to do it, then I'm going to extend this offer of grace to everybody, to, to the whole world. And, and that's kind of how the Jews felt like it was coming. But truthfully, that was always God's plan was for the entire world to be saved through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, what then? If some did not believe, what then? This, this argument here, he's basically like saying, hey, I just destroyed your last argument. Let's go to the next point. We don't even got to talk about that no more. If some did believe, then their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be. So now we're dealing with the, well, if some of the Jews didn't believe, does that nullify the promises of God for them? Does it nullify the promises of God for their, for their people, for the Jewish people? 
And Paul's saying that, that no, their unbelief does not make God's uh, word true, does not make what he says true. You know, if I were to go out and say that, uh, that everybody who goes outside and picks up 50 rocks and brings them into me, I'll give them $50. And everybody but one person goes out and gets the 50, 50 rocks, but one person doesn't, does that nullify what I said because one person didn't believe what I said, didn't do what I said? And that's, that's what he's saying here. Just because some people didn't grab a hold of the promises of God, it doesn't nullify the promises that God made to his people. He said, may it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So if, if God's promises appear to be failing in our lives, it's not God that has failed, but it's that we've not held up our end of the bargain. We've not met the conditions of the promise. You know, what he's quoting here is in Psalms Five, uh, Psalms 51.4 and it says against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in, you, in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Basically Paul's saying it's not God that's messing up. It's not God that's coming back on his word. It's not God that's not fulfilling his promises but it's, it's the people when we choose not to believe then we limit the ability of God to work in our life. In Numbers 23.19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The truth is that when, when God says something, it's, it's truth. It's, it is the literal truth. It is as good as gold. There's no, God is not going to turn back on his promises to the Jews who received his word as logos that, that held that promise, and he's not going to turn his back on the promises that he's made towards each and every one of us. You know, when people go to hell, it's not because God's failed them. When people go to hell and they die and they don't make it into heaven, it's not because God has done something wrong towards them. It's because they chose not to accept the free gift that was extended to them without cost. That is why they're not, God's not sending anybody to hell. They're actually going there of their own free will. They're going there of their own choice because God has said, I will give you eternal life if you'll just receive it. All you must do is meet the simple condition of have faith in what my son did. Amen. In Romans 3, 5 through 6, it says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human, human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? So now Paul is, is heading off another argument at the pass. And basically the argument uh, goes like this. Well, if because we messed up, because we didn't hold up our end of the bargain, then it actually made it so God could offer his uh, grace and forgiveness to the entire world, including the Gentiles. So basically, by us screwing up, we made it so God could enhance or extend God's righteousness. So if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, basically we messed up, it would be kind of like people claiming that uh, because the, the police do a good job at stopping crime, and they're out there, they're, they're stopping crime, they're doing what they're supposed to do, they're giving tickets, they're arresting people, that matter of fact, it's, it's wrong of them to arrest people because arresting people actually makes them look better because they're doing their job. Basically, they're doing their job by arresting people, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't throw the book at them. We should actually give them a medal because they're the ones that actually made the police look good. Because if they weren't doing any crime, then the police wouldn't have a job, right? It's kind of a, that's the argument that's being made here. Wait a minute, how can he, how can he justly uh, hold us to this standard when we're actually making him be able to offer this, this grace and forgiveness? 
So Paul's heading that off of the pass. He says, the God who inflicts, right, who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Basically, he's saying, the God who upholds his standard is not unrighteous. Is he being unrighteous by holding you to a standard? By saying that this is what needs to happen to be considered right before God? He says, may it never be, for how will, jo- how will, judge, how will God judge the world? Amen. See, the truth is, if God extends judgment to us, he is not being unrighteous. As a matter of fact, he's being righteous by extending judgment towards us. Because he says, if it was the case that he was actually acting unrighteously, if he was actually acting out of line, if the policemen were acting out of line by arresting somebody doing a crime because it made them look better, then, then he would be acting unrighteously. Matter of fact, if, the police, if that's the way we saw the world, the police would actually be doing the wrong thing by arresting people because they were taking advantage of a situation to lift themselves up. But Paul's saying that that can't be true. We all agree, all the Jews agree, that God will judge the world. And how could he judge the world if he was unrighteous? Paul says, no, he is righteous in doing this. So let's keep going. In Romans 3, 7 through 8, it says, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Basically, the, he's continuing on with this argument. If, if me messing up abounded to God's glory, why am I in trouble? Because I'm helping God out, right? That's what we're doing when we sin is helping God out, right? The arguments people make, huh? And he says, Then why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. You know, this is the, the, the same argument uh, that was being made before. You know, why would we be, be punished for helping God? It's kind of a, 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 a distorted view of what's actually happening. And later on in Romans 6, chapter 1, uh, Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 1, he deals with it again. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And of course, the answer to that was, May it never be. I mean, it's preposterous to think that when we sin, it gives God the opportunity to extend grace. Therefore, we are giving him the opportunity to be graceful. So, I mean, we're pretty awesome that we're letting God do that, right? And then Paul wants to clear it up and says, you know what, there are some people who are saying that this is what we're saying, that, that you can go ahead and, and do whatever you want. And uh, we're actually helping God. He says, we are slanderously reported to say this, that let us do evil so that good may come. When the truth is, we, we all know that's, that's absurd. There's no way that, that when we do evil, it actually glorifies God. And he says their condemnation is just. What he means by that is those people that are saying these things, those people that are saying, hey, let us do evil so that good may come of it, when they come under condemnation for what they're doing, when they have to stand before the Lord, he says that their condemnation is going to be just. They're not going to be able to make this frivolous and silly argument that, hey, wait a minute, I was giving you a hand, God. You should be patting me on the back and giving me a medal. That's, that's not going to be a valid argument. But unfortunately, we kind of see this sometimes going on in today's world, we see this idea that, uh, uh, I've told you before, it's like a big giant pendulum. At one point, the pendulum swung this way, and it was, it was all works. You had to do this, this, and this, and this, and if you, didn't, if you didn't do all these things, if you weren't at church seven times a day and read your Bible for 14 hours a day, and you didn't help little old ladies cross the street, and you never cussed, and you never did anything bad, then, then, then uh, you weren't getting into heaven. You have to do all these things. 
And then the Pendulum people got a, a revelation of what grace was and saying, hey, wait a minute, grace is a gift offered freely by God. They were finally catching hold of what Paul was saying, and this pendulum began to swing. And somewhere, it went across the, the balance point and went this other way, saying that, oh, we're forgiven, we can do whatever we want. God's going to forgive us, so you know, just peace, love, and happiness, and let's do our own thing, and, and God loves us no matter what, so uh, it doesn't matter what we do. But the truth is, in Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Basically, the deal is, is that, that we are free from sin. We are not free to sin. Sin is destructive in our lives always. It, it puts a wedge between you and God and, and it begins to push us apart. And the truth is that there's, I thank God that when we fall and we make a mistake that we are forgiven. God extends his grace and uh, it's like we've never sinned. Our sin is as far from us as the east is to the west. When we fall, as long as we get back up, God extends his grace and forgiveness. However, it's not a, a free pass for us to do whatever we want. It's not the, well, I know God's going to forgive me, so I can go ahead and fool around and do whatever I want. The truth is, that's just not the case. We are free, free from sin, not free to sin. God has made it so sin no longer has a hold on us anymore, and we can live free from the grasp and the bondage of sin. You know, it's such a dangerous thing to, to, to live... live uh, your life thinking that, you know, if I mess up, God will forgive me so I can do whatever I want. Because even though we are extended grace and forgiveness, sin still has consequences in our lives. You know, if a, if a, a man or a woman gets involved in pornography, I thank God that God can deliver from them, them from that and they, can, uh, uh, and they can be forgiven. But if they go into it thinking that, oh, God's going to forgive me so I can go on these websites and do whatever I want, how many know that that's going to that's create damage in their life? It's going to damage their relationship with their spouse. I mean, if, if your wife finds out you're going on these websites and stuff, she's not going to be very happy. You know, that's going to damage your relationship. There's consequences to sin, even though that we may be forgiven. You know, there's, uh, if somebody were to murder somebody, God will extend grace and forgiveness to them if they, if they earnestly repent and turn towards them. But the truth is they may spend the rest of their life in prison because that's a consequence of murdering someone, amen? And truthfully, the person that's dead is dead. That's a consequence of that, of that sin. Even though forgiveness can be extended, there's still consequences for all these things that we do. But it's always good to remember that we're actually free from these things. When, when those fleshly desires to do those things come upon us, we can remember that the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us has made us have the ability to be free from those things. And, we, and we're not under that control and bondage. Amen. In Romans 3, 9 through 18, this is a good one here. Basically, this is when uh, Paul lays it out and, and tells it how it is. Without Jesus, this is who we are. It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Now we're going back to that argument. The Jews are good, the Jews are bad, the Jews are the same. Anyway, we're basically saying that we are equal in God's eyes. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is, no, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, this is basically Paul, and if, if you don't know this, when you see caps, at least in the New American Standard Bible, caps means that I'm quoting from the Old Testament, or that the, the author is Paul in this case. And this is just a slew of verses all spread out through the Old Testament that Paul is saying, listen, we need to understand that we are on equal footing before God. There is none not righteous, not even one. And he just goes on this laundry list of scriptures that, are, that is testifying to the fact that, that on our own, we cannot measure up. It's the ultimate uh, uh, leveler between, between all men is that, that without God, we are sinners. Stephen Curtis Chapman said, and his pastor in one of the books said, in the gospel, we discover we are far worse off than we thought, but we are far more loved than we ever dreamed. You know, we look, we look at who we are without God and we're lost, we're broken. We are, we are missing uh, uh, something inside of us. And we understand that, that on our own we can never be made whole. We learn through the, through the gospel and you, know, you read scriptures like this, on our own we can never be made whole. And, you know, that's what he says here, that, that uh, we realize that we're far worse off than we ever thought. You know, when we feel like we're, 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 we're really a good person, we're pretty much a good person, internally, without Jesus, this is who we are. But then we also understand that we're far more loved than we can ever dream either, as well. As Jesus sent down His Son to become sin for us, He sent down His one and only Son to die on the cross to make us whole. Now, I know, and I've said it before, I wouldn't have given up my Son. You know, my son's 10 years old now, and I can't imagine what that would be like to give up my son for somebody else. It, it boggles my mind, the amount of love that that took. And I wouldn't even do it for someone I love, probably. But God did it for, for people that the Bible says that, that, that they were enemies of God. God gave his son and, and laid down his life so that we could be made pure. And Jesus said that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for another. I mean, the, the, amount of God, the amount of love that God poured out towards us is, is, is amazing to me. I can't even fathom uh, what that would have took. But it's good to be reminded that that's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves you. You, know, you would do well to wake up every morning and say, He loves me, He loves me, He loves me. Remind yourself of the love of God poured out to you. See, that's the problem, though, that, that without Jesus, we have a huge gap between us and God, all this stuff here. Ron Mel wrote in his book, uh, Love Found a Way, he says, Whenever I drive to the east side of Portland over the Markham Bridge, I'm reminded what it took for God to save us. On the upper deck of that two-decker freeway spanning the wide Willamette River, you can catch a glimpse of an exit that drops off into empty space. I looked up pictures of this bridge. It's this huge bridge across this huge river. And 
at one point the bridge was supposed to fork and go off onto another highway, but it never happened. So there's this this fork on the bridge, and then it just stops. If you were to, it's blocked off, but if you were to just keep driving, you drive off into the water. So that's this bridge he's talking about. It says when the bridge was built back in the mid 1960s, it was designed to accommodate an east running freeway still on the drawing boards, which was to be known as the Mount Hood Freeway. But the freeway was never built. Oregon voters opted for a light rail line instead, and plans for the highway were scraped. Even though there is no Mount Hood freeway, you can certainly see Mount Hood from the top of the deck of the Marquam Bridge. On a clear day, it looms in the eastern horizon, a symmetrical snow-capped beauty. And if you look carefully, you can see how the bridge was built to accommodate a freeway lane veering off to the southeast. It juts out just a bit from the bridge structure, then is cut off as though sliced by a giant knife. The exit, permanently blocked, now goes nowhere except into the waters of the Willamette far below. You can see Mount Hood in all its beauty glistening like a jewel in the distance, but you could never, never reach the high slopes of that peak via the Mount Hood Freeway because the freeway doesn't exist. You see, that's the picture of a man's relationship with God. We might understand that there is a God, and we even yearn to reach Him across an impossible distance. We might recognize His power and glory, His majesty and His goodness, and desire with all of our hearts to know Him and be with Him. But the distance is too great. The gulf is too wide. You see, without Jesus, that distance between us and God can never, can never be crossed. There's a gap there that we can never make it across. Oftentimes you have seen illustrations where they show a big gulf, us on one side and God on the other, and the cross is draped in between like a bridge so we can make it across. But without the cross, there's no way we're getting across that bridge to be in fellowship and, and, and be righteous with God. You see, God doesn't love us for what we've done. God's love is not based on how good we've been or, or what we've done. Did we do enough things? Did we, were we nice to enough people? Did we give enough money? God doesn't love us based on all the different things that we've done. The truth is, God loves us in spite of the things we've done. You know, we, we, we know of the stuff that we've done in our lives. We know of these things, and, and there's stuff that nobody knows except for us. There's stuff that we've told no one, not even our, our closest friends or spouses. But these aren't hidden from God. And He loves you in spite of those things that you've done. His love is not based on what you've accomplished or what you've done. His love is based on His love. I mean, He loves you because He created you. And he sent his son so that those things that are in the deepest recess that you won't tell anybody about were paid for and they are wiped away clean as far as the east is from the west. In Romans 3, 19 through 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's true that the doers of the law are justified. It says in Romans 2.13, we read it last week, that it says it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But we just have one big problem with that statement, because that is a true statement. The problem is this. No one can live up to the standards of the law even if we could somehow live our entire lives without ever breaking the law at all, we would still fail because the law demands perfection. To, to be right with God, the law demands perfection. But we're born broken. We're born by the, by the, by the nature of Adam's sin. We were born broken. There's nothing that we could do. 
But the truth is that argument doesn't even matter because none of us has lived a life that's perfect. None of us. Not, even, even children are, have already made mistakes. That they, that none of us has lived that life that is, that is perfect. And it demands perfection. And the truth is that, that we're going to be judged not on the standards we set for ourselves, but the standards that God set. A, a standard that God says, this is what's required for righteousness. And it's, it's like... Uh, the people that argue, well, I'm, I'm pretty much a good person. I'm basically a good person. You know, I, I've all, I always do the right things. And, and we've known people like that that are truly good people. But even them, without Jesus, can never measure up to the requirements set forth before God. It's like the, uh, uh, there was an armed robber in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. His name was uh, Dennis Lee Curtis. And he was arrested and... Uh, Apparently he had, he had a, a code of honor he worked by in his thievery. In his wallet, the police, the police found a sheet of paper that said, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will not take cash and food stamps. Or I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. If I, get, if I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. But if chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will rob only seven months out of the year, and I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. So this guy, he had a set of standards for himself. I mean, he was uh, an up-and-up thief, I guess. <laughs> but the truth is, how many know that when he went before the court, his set of rules that he set before him didn't mean a thing? The standard that he set for himself didn't mean anything in a court of law because the court of law has these standards and it doesn't say you're allowed to rob seven months out of the year. It says that you're not ever allowed to steal something from somebody, even are if you're giving it to the poor. <coughs> and then furthermore, the law served to highlight areas that we don't measure up in. You know, and most of the things that, that we look at the law, I think we all pretty much understand that thou shalt steal, thou shalt not murder, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, these are things we all, we all look at, and we, re I mean, we all recognize that sin right away. But you know, there's one, and Paul talks about it in Romans 7, 7 through 8, is, is covetousness. It says, what, in Romans 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had so not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through this commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Covetousness, which is wanting what's some, something that somebody else has, is a sin. You know, when, when you're not satisfied with what you have, when you uh, want what they have, you know, if you want somebody else's wife, you covet their wife, that's a sin. In many ways, actually. But there's, you know, when you, coveting something is a sin. And we would have never known that wanting... Uh, you know, what somebody else had to the point of that they can't even have it if you can't have it. You know, it's not a, it's not a simple desire covetousness is talking about. It's not, a, oh, that would be cool if I had that too. But that's the point of, you know, you're going to go take it or they can't have it if you can't have it type of, of, of covetousness. But uh, that's a sin. And we would have never known that if God wouldn't have, you know, said, listen, wanting what somebody else has is a sin. But then we realize as it's pointed out, Paul says that, uh, it produced in me coveting of every kind. As soon as you found out it was a sin, now the next thing you know, you wanted everything. You know, it actually produced power in their lives. And that's the problem with the law is it highlights our sins. 
and keeps us focused on our sins rather than focused on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21-22 through 22, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Apart from the law, righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifested. What Paul is telling them is that, that you know, righteousness no longer depends on the law anymore. Righteousness depends, depends on faith in Jesus Christ. And it means it's extended to those who even did not receive the law. If the, if the work of the law, if, if righteousness is not based on the law, then not only those that have the law can be righteous, but those even without the law can be righteous as well. And he's saying there's, there's no distinction at the end here where he says there's no distinction. He's saying that the, the Jews, Gentiles, those who receive the law, those who do not receive the law, grace is, and is offered to all of them. Righteousness of God has been manifested to all, not just those who receive the law. And then he says that uh, this is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This is kind of shorthand by saying the law and the prophets is basically shorthand for saying the word of God in the Old Testament. He's like, you know what? I'm not just making this up. I'm not just pulling this out of the blue. Matter of fact, over the next few chapters, he's going to spend time pointing out in the Old Testament where it shows that righteousness actually comes by faith and not by works of the law. See, the truth is that righteousness is received only by faith. When you go to get on a, an airplane or a, a train, um, when you walk up and you're walking through the, the ticket line, when you want to get on the airplane, they're not looking at you. They're not looking to see, is this man dressed nice enough? Is his shoes shined? How was he treating people when he was waiting in the lobby, when he was waiting to get on the plane? How was he treating people? Because if he wasn't treating them good enough, he's not getting on. You know, the truth is, when you're, when you're ready to get on an airplane, they're not looking at all that stuff. They don't care if you have nice clothes on. They don't care if you smell pretty. They don't care if you're, if you're clean-shaven or you uh, have a big scruffy beard. They, they don't care anything about you other than when you walk through that you show them that ticket. If you have a ticket, you're getting on the plane. If you don't have a ticket, you're not getting on the plane. If you walk up and you say, oh, I forgot my, I don't have a ticket, but you're dressed all super nice. You got a suit on, you got nice shoes on. You're walking with a, a cane, you got some bling on your fingers and some chains and you're looking good. They don't care. It's the ticket that'll get you on the plane. And it's the same way with God, except for faith is our ticket. Faith in Jesus Christ. When you stand before God, it's not going to matter how good you were in this lifetime or all the good things that you've done, but do you have that ticket of faith in Jesus Christ where he's made you righteous so you can get in? Amen? Then Romans 8, 3.23-26, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just in case you were curious, if anybody didn't, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace to the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ." It's a true statement that all have failed. We've all fallen short and we all need a Savior. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the truth. But that's not what the good news of the gospel is. The good news of the gospel 
is that even so we are justified as a gift, given freely from God so that we can made whole. See, propitiation, this word propitiation here, where is it at, right here, is basically the, is the satisfaction of the righteous demand of God for our sins. He satisfied that requirement in Jesus Christ. And then something else we need to recognize that as it here is being justified as a gift. How many know that just because something is free doesn't mean it's cheap? You know, you can, you can give, somebody can give you something and to you it's free, but it may be incredibly expensive. We need to remember that if we ever had this idea that, oh, I've got to pay for my sins, I've got to pay for what I've done, we need to recognize that it was already paid for. It may be free to us, but it wasn't cheap. Somebody already gave up his life so that you could live free from sin and that you could be made pure and holy on the inside. And even so, it's not a debt you could pay. There's nothing that you could do to pay that debt that's, that's owed to God, that, to make yourself, to be that propitiation on your own. There's nothing you could do. And the truth is, there's definitely nothing you could do to add to what Jesus has already done. When Jesus sat down on the right hand of the Father, he sat down because it is finished. Tom Allen is a pastor of Grace Church in Seattle. He says he took his daughters, Abby and Flannery, to get something fun to drink at a coffee stand. And Abby got an apple juice and Flannery got a mango surprise. And he says, despite my insistence that I would pay, my daughters had brought the contents of their piggy bank and combined a combined total of about 80 cents. As we were walking to the counter, one of them said, I want to pay for mine. And I kept telling her, don't worry, daddy's got it. And nonetheless, she insisted, I'm paying for mine. And as the clerk rang it up, she said, that'll be $2.06. And, and uh, his oldest daughter throws her change on the counter and says, and the, the clerk goes, um, that's, that's not enough. So he says, I felt a tug from my other sleeve from my youngest daughter. And he looked down at her and she said, Dad, I think I'd like to use your money. <laughs> and that's how it is with God. If we were to try to put our money on the counter, it would never pay for what is owed. So I thank God that Jesus lets us use his money. Amen. In Hebrews 7, 26 through 27, it says, For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, <clears throat> innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself up. I want you to know that the sacrifice Jesus made was the once and for all sacrifice. There was a difference between the sacrifice Jesus made and the sacrifice that was made, being made beforehand. As they offered up the blood of bulls and goats, they were never able to completely pay for sin because if they did, why would they have to keep offering up a new one every day? As a matter of fact, the priest would offer up a sacrifice in the morning for the sins of the nation, and then they'd do it again in the evening. Every single day, twice a day, they'd offer a sacrifice. And this wasn't including the sacrifices that, that individuals made for their own sins. and all. The, I mean, there was a lot of sacrificing going on. Because it didn't stick. It wasn't permanent. They had to keep redoing it. You know, the truth is, those sacrifices were just a shadow uh, a type and shadow of what was to come for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the price was finally paid. The requirement for justice had been, justice had been met. Matter of fact, a scary verse to some Christians is if you read on in Hebrews 10.26, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the reason that's a scary one is it's misunderstood left and right. People seem to think that after I get saved, if I sin, there's nothing left for me. You know, I, once I get saved, all my old sins are covered, but uh, any sin after that, if I mess up, then I've got to pay the price for it. There's no more sacrifices for it. But that's not actually what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that if you go on willfully sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what he's saying is if you reject Jesus Christ, if you hear the knowledge of the truth and someone preaches the gospel for you and, and they continued to go on sinning and they chose to reject Jesus, Paul was saying that you know, you're not going to be able to offer up a bull or a goat anymore. There's no longer a sacrifice for sin. Jesus was it. Jesus was the sacrifice. If you don't accept that sacrifice for your sins, there's nothing left for you to do. You can't earn it, you can't work hard enough, and you can't offer up the sacrifice of a bull or a goat. None of those sacrifices are going to work because Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice, and that's the one you need to put your faith in. Amen. Then Romans 3, 27 through 30, it says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. You know, there's just one God for, for Gentiles and Jews alike. And uh, righteousness, salvation, is the same for both of us. And that is faith in Jesus. And he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. You know, the truth is that none of us can ever go to heaven and say, hey, Paul, the reason I'm in here is because I did so good. Because I went to church four times a week for my entire life, and I never cussed, and I never looked at another woman except my wife. You know, we're never going to go to heaven and be able to boast in our abilities to say that this is why we're here. It's been excluded. In 1 Corinthians 1.27-31, through 31, Paul says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen these things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But... By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just it is written, let him boast, let him who boasts, boast in the, in the Lord. The truth is that our boasting can only be in Jesus, what he did for us. The difference between the law and, and, and uh, Jesus is that the law made us focus on our sins and what we could do to overcome them. But Jesus, our focus is entirely on Him and what He did perfectly to overcome sin in our life. Our focus isn't on Him, therefore our boasting should be in Him. Romans 3.31 says, Do we nullify the law through faith? He says, May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What Paul is saying is that we're not tossing out one to embrace another. We're not tossing the law out to start a new religion, but this has always been the plan of God. The law actually establishes Jesus Christ and establishes righteousness by faith. And in chapter 4, it begins to show that the, the law actually demonstrates that righteousness is the result of faith. You see, the Jewish people thought that what Paul was teaching was in contrast to the Old Testament. He thought that, that uh, it was actually fighting against the law instead of working in harmony with it. 
But the truth is that the purpose of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. And its role, its role in God's plan to direct the people to faith in Jesus was what it was. It was its goal was basically to show us that we couldn't live up and that we need a Savior. So why the law? question I've asked myself many times. Why not just do Jesus in the first place? Why go through all this rigmarole? And I th the truth is that its purpose was to show us that we would never do it alone. I mean, if the law never came, would people even accept Jesus? They would just continue going on thinking that they could be good. Matter of fact, knowing that we can't live up, there's plenty of people thinking they can be good enough. But the truth is, the, the law made the point clear that we can never measure up, and the only way is in Jesus Christ. And I thank God that He gave His Son so that we could be full and complete in Him. And the last scripture we're going to look at now is Matthew 5, 17 through 18. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus didn't come to throw the law out the window. It says here he actually came to fulfill the law. You know, something that I've always loved about uh, what God did through his son was that he didn't lower his standards so that we could be in fellowship with him. He didn't say, all right, we're going to categorize sin and these lesser sins. If you do these, you're still okay. I can forgive this. I'll just ignore the smaller ones and the big ones I can't ignore. Or when it says that he remembers your sins no more, it doesn't mean that he, he is just ignoring them completely and not extracting uh, justice or righteousness for them, justice for them. He's, he's not ignoring our sins. He didn't just turn a blind eye. But he actually made payment for them. He, he made it so that the law, which required death, the wages of sin is death, right? He made it that the law required death. He didn't just ignore us and let us get away with it, but he actually had his son pay the price for us. Jesus literally fulfills the law. The law requires perfection, and Jesus accomplished that in us. He made us perfect. The law demands a payment. The, the, the payment of sin is death. But Jesus paid that price for us. The law didn't pass away. The law didn't go anywhere. The law is still righteous and in effect. The difference is, is that we live with the law of righteousness, the law of faith, because faith in Jesus fulfills the law in us. Amen? Amen. Praise God.